Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have in our brief study of 1 Samuel already noted, I hope, I trust, that this is a book very relevant uh, throughout the history of the church, certainly, and very relevant for our circumstance today. It's a word that speaks to the moment in which we are called to minister both as believers, as families, as church community, as Christians. We live in a time of great darkness within the culture in which we live, in a time of great apostasy and immorality. We live in a time where the Lord needs to do a great and mighty work. And the encouragement of First Samuel is that the Lord does those works. The encouragement of Samuel's conception and birth is that God comes in the midst of all of this wickedness and he does a wonderful thing. The, the encouragement of, of God's counting the sins of Eli, of Hophni and Phinehas, is that those who rebel against him and do such harm to those around them are not uh, forgotten. The Lord weighs them in his scale. And so this is a word that is relevant for the church throughout history, but certainly also today. But what does it speak to us as church? What is this word of the Lord to us? both as congregation, as individual Christians, as a community of believers? What is the responsibility that we have within this work of God, within this redeeming power of God? That's the question we want to consider and begin to see a, a part, part of the answer to as we study First uh, Samuel 3. We want to see how the Lord has a plan and a purpose for His church. And we want to see uh, that he has this plan and a purpose for his church precisely because of what's wrong with it. What's wrong with it? Notice at the very beginning of our text, we read this. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Now that phrase, no frequent vision, is actually a bit more technical than is able to be expressed in our English language. Really what the author of 1 Samuel is saying is that the, uh, there was no seer. Uh, a seer in those days was someone who mediated the divine revelation, the word of God, to the people. And, and what the author here is saying to us is not simply that there, weren't anyone who, there wasn't anyone who saw the things of God, but that there was no one man to whom God revealed himself that he might communicate to the nation now the things of the Lord. There were occasional moments, there were these one-off moments, but there was not this official capacity, this servant of the Lord, whose purpose was to communicate to the church who God is and what He commands. The word was rare, says our text. Rare. Which was a a heavy word to describe for the church at any time in history, but certainly at that time. A rare word was a judgment. A rare word was a, a statement by God concerning the condition of His church at that time. Because... The Lord withheld His Word not due to His unfaithfulness. Not due to His failure, but due to His people's. 
In Amos 8 verse 11, we read about a famine of bread, not, or a famine rather of the word, not of bread or a thirst uh, for water, but of a hearing of the word of the Lord. It is a judgment of God upon His people when His word is rare. And that rareness is pressed home for us when we're told that at that time Eli, who would have been the mediator, the seer, who was supposed to be as the high priest, the one who communicated the word to the people, his eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see. That is more than just a reference, of course, to his physical abilities, though it is certainly true his vision, his physical eyesight was diminishing, but his spiritual eyesight was as well. Remember how in chapter 1, he accused Hannah of sin. But how his own boys went unchecked in his own home. He had poor eyesight. And as a result, we're told the lamp of the Lord was diminishing. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, we're told. This is a word of encouragement, but also a an indicator of the circumstance of the church at that time. That lamp of the Lord is spoken of by God in many places in Exodus 27 or 25, in Exodus 30, and in Leviticus 24. It plays a very specific role. It represents in many ways, you might say, the light of God. It points us to the Lord. It was to be always lit. It was to be trimmed through the night so that it never went out. It was to always shine into the darkness of this world. That was indeed the purpose of that seven-branched lamp, even as that was the very purpose of the church. It was a representation in its own way of what God had established when He had chosen in Abraham for Himself a people. Because you'll remember that the plan of God in redemptive history is to not just save one group of people, but to save the entire world. That when the Lord came to Abram, it was not simply to bless this one man and his family, but through this man to bless the whole world. God's redemptive plan has always been global, and He uses His church... To borrow the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, as a city on the hill to be a light to the darkness. That's what that lamp represented in the temple, in the tabernacle. That's what that lamp did. It pointed people to the faithfulness, to the glory of God. Even as creation sings the praises of God, pointing us to see our great Creator and Lord. So this lamp was to point us to the redeeming grace of God in Jesus Christ. And that was the role of the church. The church was to be this place where people saw the righteousness, the holiness, the grace and goodness, the love and mercy of their great God. This was to be a people planted as God did in the middle of the world, at the crossroads of all the nations. He planted them there that they might be a witness to the world. And yet we read here in this place, That for all of the Lord's grace and goodness and plan for His people, the Word of the Lord was rare in those days and there was no frequent vision. Eli's eyesight is dim and the lamp is not yet gone out. 
It's a diminishing day. It's a day of gloom. It's a day of darkness. And it is in that context that we find the events of our text. It's in that setting that the Lord speaks His Word to Samuel. And we need to reflect on that context for a moment. We need to reflect on what what the Lord is saying to us before we jump to the events of God's call to Samuel. We need to reflect on that because I think we can see a similar description of the church today. Not of our church by God's grace and faithfulness undoubtedly, but if we look at the Canadian context, if we look at the North American, indeed the Western civilization context, what do we see? Do we not see churches no longer passionate about, no longer focused on the things of God and of His Word? We might say that within the churches today, many today go to church, many go into their congregations, and many preachers stand before their people, but we can say the Word of the Lord is rare in these days. Is rare in these days. And that even while we are concerned about and rightly bothered by the immorality of our culture and of the dark clouds of rebellion against God that are growing and the way in which our world is oppressing the church and the truth, I think we ought to focus our attention more clearly upon the failure of the church to faith be faithful to the Word of God in these days. That before we go blaming our Prime Minister, our Premier, who deserve all of the blame that they may, they may get, we ought to first lay the blame at the feet of the office bearers of the church. The reason why Western civilization has become what it is is not because of academics and universities. It is not because of politicians in Ottawa or anywhere else. It is because in the pulpits of the nation, the Word of God is rare. Because the Word of God is dim. Because there is a darkness in our land. We need to see that that's the problem today, lest we place our hope in the wrong Savior. We need to see that within the context of our own congregation, and it needs to be for us both as office bearers and as members of the church a burden. We need to be reminded daily of the call of Christ to the church to live in the light of His Word. I think now particularly of the call in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1 of office bearers in the church where the Lord calls His office bearers to be reflections of the piety that is commanded in His Word. He wants the elders of the church, the deacons and ministers of the church to show that they walk in the way of the Lord, that the Word is not rare in their lives, but that the Word shines brightly. Because the Lord knows, we know, this text teaches us that when leadership in the church fails, the congregation suffers, the darkness descends. The same is true not only in the church, but also at home. We need to speak a word to our fathers, to our husbands, to our men. Because the truth is, men, if you are not leading your home, if you are not in your word, opening that word for your family and ministering that word into the lives of your wife and children, then you may not be surprised when devastation follows. 
not that our work is the cause of the blessing that our families enjoy. Precisely the opposite, that the reason we as men, as leaders within our home, ought to be those who hold high the word, the light of God, is because we know that it alone can provide what we need. Not us, children. Don't follow dad. Don't listen to dad's will and word. Listen to the father who has redeemed us in his son. When we point all of our children, when we take that light of the Word and call them to faith in Jesus Christ, then the Lord blesses that. Not by our ability, for it is meek and meager, but for His faithfulness in Jesus Christ. And don't be surprised then that where the light of God's Word is not bright, your people stumble. Your people stumble. We need to see also within the context of our own circumstance of life that the Word must be bright. That is, after all, what makes us special as a people. What makes us special as a congregation. It is not our ethnicity, not our wealth, not our brilliance, not our abilities that blesses us, that makes us to be a people that stands upon the sure foundation of God's Word. It is God's grace ministered to us through His Word, that Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. What made Israel unique in the Old Covenant, what made her special was not who she was Not because they were more in number. Not because they were better, says the Lord in Deuteronomy 7. But because of who He is. Because of His faithfulness towards them. The Lord came to them and by His Word revealed to them His saving power and grace whereby He led them out of darkness into light. That light that pierces the darkness at the very beginning of time when God says... In the darkness over which the Spirit hovers, let there be light. And there was light. Light that pierces the darkness. Light that led Israel through the exodus, through to the land of promise. That light of which God promises His people when in Isaiah 6, He prophesies concerning the Messiah, the people will see a great light. Or even as we have already heard in this service from Psalm 27 verse 1, the Lord teaches His people to confess, the Lord is my light. The Lord is my light. That's what makes us special, people of God. That is what makes our church strong, blessed. The light of God's Word is what makes us unique. And that Word must always be precious to us. That Word must always be valued by us. That Word must always be followed by us. Followed, yes, even when it is challenging. Even when it speaks a very hard word. We need to see that within the context of our own culture. In the religious landscape of our day, we bemoan the closing of churches and the apparent diminishment of the faithful in the land. But we should at least consider whether or not the church has contributed to this darkness by her rejection of the light. And if that's the case, whether or not we need to renew our commitment to the light of God's Word. A light that can challenge Notice what follows in our text in that 
calling of the Lord to Samuel. Samuel, who we're told, was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. It's an interesting description because it is impossibly, impossible in its literalness. It, it can't possibly be true. That is, Samuel wasn't allowed to lie in the place that the text suggests he is. No one was allowed to lie where the ark of God was. That was the Holy of Holies. The high priest could only go in there in that but once a year. So when the author tells us this, he's he's saying more to us than just a geographical thing. He's saying more to us than just, hey, Samuel was, was in the temple near the Ark of the Covenant. He's saying that Samuel was near to the Lord. He's saying to us something about Samuel's relationship with the Lord. The Lord who had given him life and who had called him to this very purpose now calls him in the darkness. Samuel, he says. We know how the story goes. Yes, Eli. No, it's not me. Samuel, he says. Yes, Eli. No, it's not me. Three times we hear that. And then we read some of the maybe most discouraging words ever found in the Scripture. For in verse 8 it says, Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. doesn't seem discouraging, does it? But in that moment, Eli knew he had been passed over and the judgment had come. Eli the high priest, the man called to mediate the covenant, the man given the position of leader in the church, the man who was supposed to hold out the light. Don't miss the grief of this. Don't miss the, the great judgment that is expressed in this text. For the Lord says to, to Samuel, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. What a burden. What a burden. But in that darkness, the Lord begins a great thing for He is calling Samuel. Samuel, He says, and finally, Eli says, yeah, I know who, the, who it is. It's the Lord calling you. Go back, lay down. When, he, when you hear the voice, say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. But then something changes. Samuel, he had said three times. Samuel, he had said. But then he says in verse 10, or we read rather in verse 10, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Two things. The Lord stood and he said Samuel's name twice. Maybe that seems insignificant or just a color of the text. Maybe it's something you read and you pass over you don't think twice about. But it ought to at least remind you of a few things. Not to remind you of matter moments of great redemptive significance. There are other times, and certainly to this point in the redemptive history, two other times or no, uh, one other time when the Lord had spoken a name twice. There would be one more after and two before. What does the Lord say when he calls Abram in Genesis 22 verse 11? He says, Abram, Abram. What does he say to Moses when he calls Moses out of the burning bush? He says, Moses, Moses. Think of those moments. Think of what the Lord was doing in those moments. Think of the great redemptive power of God that was being unleashed in those moments and recognize that the double repetition of the name marks the beginning of something very special. 
Samuel, Samuel is not just a way for God to get the attention of this young man, but is a way to indicate to all who hear a great thing is about to happen. And that's added to, or the the standing of the Lord by Samuel adds to that truth as well. Because the Lord stood once before upon the earth. In Exodus 34 verse 5, when the new tablets of stone on Mount Sinai were given by God to Moses for the leading of his people, the Lord had also stood upon the earth. Because when God stands upon the earth, he comes to do something, to do something great, something redemptive. You cannot miss for a moment what God is doing in this calling of Samuel. It's not just a cute story about how this young boy becomes the prophet of the Lord. It is instead a revelation of God's coming onto this earth to perform a great and glorious work. God indicates in the way that he calls Samuel that he's about to do wonderful things. And what is that wonderful thing that he's going to do? He's going to speak. For he conscripts Samuel for the purpose of prophesying, of telling the people about his word, about what he's doing, about who he is. That's the glorious revelation that God brings through Samuel. This is clearly in the text, that moment of the gospel message where God says, I have come, I have descended from heaven above to stand upon the earth and to do a great work. The Lord had come into the people's darkness in order to shine the light of His Word into their lives. And this is, people of God, the great comfort that the church has always had. Because it is often in the darkest moments of our history that the Lord makes Himself most clearly known. That's true personally. That's true corporately. The history of the church is the history of some dark moments where it seems as though the church is about to be destroyed. Elijah with the 7,000. You remember the day. But God says, I've come to do a great work. And what was that work in Elijah's day but a proclamation of the Word? What is that great work in this day but a proclamation of the Word? What is that Work in the days of Jesus, but the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. The Lord comes to shine the light of His life-giving Word through His chosen servant so that His people might be saved. This is our God. And this is our comfort, especially in this day. In this day of darkness and growing gloom, We rejoice to know that our God is the God who works most mightily in these moments, but works most mightily in this way He gives us His Word. Don't miss the wonder of this in the text. For our God comes to a people who have rejected Him, but refuses Himself to reject them. They have refused to fulfill their task as light among the nations. And so He instead reignites the lamp of His Word. They have diminished, denied, and rejected His saving Word. 
And so instead, he brings a glorious work of salvation among them, preparing Samuel for this task before anyone knew what the Lord was doing. Nobody knew that Hannah's son would serve this purpose. And by doing so, ensures the blessedness of his church and that her light is not snuffed out, but shines all the brighter. People of God, this ought to stir our hearts to great comfort and wonder that this is our God, that this is our Lord who does not leave or forsake us, but acts faithfully, keeps covenant with us even when we fail. Even as the church and Western civilization rejects Him, yet the Lord continues to work by His Word within our midst. None of this diminishes or minimizes the weight of the sin of those days. Indeed, we'll hear the judgment of God that's about to come, but it ought to encourage the hearts of those who do fear the dark clouds of this world's immorality, knowing that the Lord our God is equal to this task and that His Word is sufficient for this moment of history. The Lord shows us the way forward as church for blessing The Lord who comes and stands in the midst of our darkness and proclaims a word, His covenantal word, His word of salvation in Jesus Christ. That is all we need to do. That is all we need to hold out to this watching world. That is our responsibility as church to cling tenaciously to the gospel and to proclaim it in our homes and in our society. Jesus is the King and Lord. It is a sufficient word. It is a powerful word. It is a brilliant word. And as a congregation, it must be a dear word to all of us. It must never bore us. It must never make us become complacent. And it must never make us wish for better things. The world holds before us its baubles and jewels and says if you follow these programs, if you do these things, if you become more like us, if you lower the walls of your righteousness and orthodoxy, if instead you let the tide of the nation come in and change the songs you sing, change the way that you worship, change the way that you think, change the way that you dress and act, become more like us, says the world. And the church says okay, and the church fades away. The light diminishes. But if we stand upon the foundation of the Word and shine the light of God brilliantly to the world, we will stand forever. As a congregation, this must be forever held before us from this pulpit and from the family visits that are made each week, month to month, by the elders and by the deacons. As families, this light must shine brilliantly in our homes. Here's the antidote to the tidal wave of immorality and rebellion against our God that is sweeping over us. How can a church survive today? It can't. Apart from the presence of God in His Word, His Word made flesh in its deepest and most humble dependence on a Savior who is foolishness to the world, but wisdom to those who know Him. There is a darkness that leads up to this moment and a darkness that follows it, but there is in this moment of God's calling Samuel a light so bright and brilliant, it leads all who see it to the way of blessing. Although it begins with a word of curse. The word to Samuel is a heavy, heavy word. It's a repeated word. That man of God in chapter 2 who had come to Eli already spoke this word. Maybe there is in that repetition itself a warning. 
Maybe if Eli had repented after hearing that word first, like Hezekiah in his day, maybe, if he had cried out to God for mercy and said, Lord, now I see, and had dealt with his sons effectively and called them to genuine repentance and faith or put them out of their ministry, maybe then this second word wouldn't have fallen. But Eli didn't reply as he was called to. He didn't respond as he should have. And God brings to his attention just how serious the sin of his sons really is. He says that they have blasphemed him. You know, that there is no greater sin. It is the sin that comes with the death penalty and the third commandment. It is the sin of high-handedness, the sin that is great and offensive in the eyes of the Lord and comes with a terrible judgment. These sons had not just misused their office. They had twisted the gospel. They had perverted the name of God. They had presented to the world a God not like the God of Scripture, but instead had presented to the world a God like the gods of the nations. And in so doing, they had diminished the light of God's gospel. They had failed to call the nations to repentance and faith. And now the wrath of God would fall and fall in a most devastating way. You may not have noticed it, but in verse 11 it says, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. It may not seem much to you, but it's a phrase only used three times in God's Word. It's used here. It's used in 2 Kings 21 verse 12 and in Jeremiah 19 verse 3 which are associated, which events are associated with the destruction of the temple. Here we might say there's a bit of a destruction of the tabernacle or at least a severe judgment against the tabernacle. In 2 Kings 21 and Jeremiah 19.3, it is against the temple of the Lord. And it is in many respects at the end of the monarchy, which is only to say that the tingling of ears begins at the monarchy and ends with the monarchy when the monarchy essentially goes into exile, which is to say it's a serious word, a word of great judgment, a word of great wrath is a word that says God's power will not relent as it is poured out upon these boys and upon this family of Eli. And that's a hard word to hear. That's a hard, that ought to be a hard word to hear. When we hear that someone, that God has rejected someone, when we hear that God has cast away someone, there is nothing worse No greater description, judgment, experience that there can be than this. And now think that this young boy, this young man, as our text says, is called to speak this word. It's often the case that in God's redeeming work when he begins a new chapter in the story of redemption it starts with a word of judgment think about how God condemned Pharaoh and Egypt and how his angel of death passed over even Israel on the day of Passover there was death before there was life think about how they entered into Canaan and God said don't touch anything and Achan did anyway and then there was death at the beginning of this season of deliverance. 
Think about how after Pentecost, how Peter spoke that word of judgment, you have not lied against man, but against God. And there was death. There is often a word of judgment before a word of grace. And for very good reason. It's because grace In God's grace, He condemns sin and delivers us from it. It is a word of judgment that clears away the wickedness of this world that the blessing of the Lord might rest upon us. That's why the cross precedes the empty tomb. And that's why the season of the church's cross-bearing precedes that season of its entering into eternal life and living upon this earth in unbroken fellowship with God. And that's why the church is often called to proclaim to the nations and to her own people a heavy word. It might make us uncomfortable. It might not be the thing that we want to hear. And it's certainly not what the world wants to hear. We don't have a problem with the idea that the Word must be central within our church as long as that Word is a Word that makes us feel better. But here's a Word that couldn't possibly make anyone feel better. It didn't make Samuel feel better. And it certainly didn't make Eli feel better. Tell me, Samuel, and may God condemn you if you do not speak the Word to me. That's what made Samuel a prophet, isn't it? He was established as a prophet of the Lord. That's how our text ends. As that seer from Dan to Beersheba, that is, he was the one through whom the Word of God was sent to all the world. And indeed, with Samuel, there is a new season. For the Word of the Lord is revealed to Samuel at Shiloh from that point on. The darkness has given way to light. Wickedness has given way to righteousness. And while it may be something we don't want to hear, the truth is we need to be reminded that sin is condemned by God in no uncertain terms. Our world doesn't want to hear it. That's why so many churches are dying. But our world fails to account for the Lord and for His righteousness, for His passion for His people. The Lord desires that His church be a light unto the nations, that they know that here is a place where Sin is condemned and grace is experienced where we acknowledge our need of the Lord and enjoy the abundance of His love. And the question we have to ask as a congregation and as individual Christians is do we see this priority and primacy in our lives? Do we see the power and the primacy of the Word both in the condemnation of sin and in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ? That is, do we need this Word? Do do we need a church that values this word? Do we want to belong to a congregation where we might be cut deep by a life-giving word that will work balm in our hearts? Do we come to church to be entertained or do we come to church in order to be drawn into the light of God's grace so that the light in us might shine brighter and brighter to the world around us? Do we see that we as a church exist for the purpose of glorifying God and calling the nations to repentance and faith, do we rejoice to know that this is our Lord? That's what this passage calls us to. That's where we begin and that's where we end. 
It is a relevant word for the days in which we live and the darkness in which we live. And it's a relevant word for us as congregation. Do do we value the word? Think not that this is just an Old Testament moment. Think not that this is just a pre-Christ moment. For this is a word that echoes at the very end of God's word as well. For what does the Lord say to the churches, and in particular to the church in Ephesus? What does He say but this? Remember therefore where you have fallen, repent into the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The Lord calls the church to acknowledge her need of His light, to not diminish it, to not shave off the rough corners of it, to not prevent it from cutting us, but from blessing us. The Lord calls us to value the Word. The Word made flesh in Jesus Christ. Let's ask Him for help in that in prayer. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come